Chapter number 12 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. This recording by Arthur Piantadosi. Chapter 12. In which Oliver is taken better care of than he ever was before. In which the narrative reverts to the merry old gentleman and his useful friends. The coach rattled away over nearly the same ground as that which Oliver had traversed when he first entered London in company with the Dodger, and turning a different way when it reached the Angel at Islington, stopped at length before a neat house in its quiet shady street near Pentonville. Here a bed was prepared, without loss of time, in which Mr. Brownlow saw his young charge carefully and comfortably deposited. And here he was tended with a kindness and solicitude that knew no bounds. But for many days Oliver remained insensible to all the goodness of his new friends. The sun rose and sank, and rose and sank again. And many times after that, and still the boy lay stretched on his uneasy bed, dwindling away beneath the wry and wasting heat of fever. The worm does not work more surely on the dead body than does this slow creeping fire upon the living frame. Weak and thin and pallid, he awoke at last from what seemed to have been a long and troubled dream. Feebly raising himself in the bed, with his head resting on his trembling arm, he looked anxiously round. What room is this? What have I been brought to? said Oliver. This is not the place I went to sleep in. He uttered his words in a feeble voice, being very faint and weak, but they were overheard at once. The cut at the bed, his head was hastily drawn back, and a motherly old lady, very neatly and precisely dressed, rose as she withdrew it from an armchair close by, in which she had been sitting in Edelworth. Hush, my dear, said the old lady, very softly. You must be quiet, very quiet, or you'll be ill again, and you'll be very bad. As past bad could be, pretty nigh. Lie down again, there's a dear. With those words, the old lady very gently placed Oliver's head upon the pillow, and smoothing back his hair from his forehead, looked so kindly and loving in his face, he could not help placing his little withered hand in hers and drawing it round his neck. Save us, the old lady, with tears in her eyes. What a grateful little dear it is. Pretty creature. What would his mother feel if he had sat by him as I had, and could see him now? Perhaps she does sing, whispered Oliver, folding his hands together. Perhaps she has said, but we how was the feeling if she had? How was the fever, my dear? said the old lady mildly. I suppose it was, replied Oliver, because heaven is a long way off, and they're too happy there to come down to the bedside of a poor boy. But if she knew I was ill, she must have pitied me even there. But he was very ill before all she died. She can't know anything about me, though. And it all fell after a moment's silence. If she had seen me hurt, it would have made her sorrowful, and his face has always looked as eat and happy when I have dreamed of her. The old lady had no reply to this, but wiping her eyes first and his spectacles, which lay on the counterpane afterwards as if they were part and parcel of those features, brought the same cool stuff for Oliver to drink. And then, patting him on the cheek, told him he must lie very quiet, or he would be ill again. So Oliver kept very still, partly because he was anxious to obey the kind old lady in all things, and partly, to tell the truth, 
because he was completely exhausted at what he had already said. He soon fell into a gentle doze, from which he was awakened by the light of a candle, which, being brought near the bed, showed him a gentleman with a very large and loud ticking gold watch in his hand, who felt his pulse and that he was a great deal better. You are a great deal better, are you not, my dear? said the gentleman. Yes, thank you, sir, replied Oliver. Yes, I know you are, said the gentleman. You're hungry, too, aren't you? No, sir, replied Oliver. <laughs> said the gentleman. No, I know you're not. He is not hungry, Miss Bedwin, said the gentleman, looking very wise. The old lady made a respectful inclination of her head, which seemed to say that she thought the doctor was a very clever man. The doctor appeared much of the same opinion himself. You feel sleepy, don't you, my dear? said the doctor. No, sir, replied Oliver. No, said the doctor, with a very shrewd and satisfied look. You're not sleepy, nor thirsty, are you? Yes. "'Rather thirsty,' answered Oliver. "'Just as I expected, Mrs. Bedwin,' said the doctor. "'It's very natural he should be thirsty. "'You may give him a little tea, ma'am, "'and some dry toast without any butter. "'Don't keep him too warm, ma'am, "'but be careful you don't let him be too cold. "'Will you have the goodness?' "'The old lady dropped a courtesy. The "'Doctor, after tasting the cool stuff "'and expressing a qualified approval of it, "'hurried away.' his boots creaking in a very important and wealthy manner as he went downstairs. Oliver dozed off again, soon after this, when he awoke. It was nearly twelve o'clock. The old lady tenderly bade him good night shortly afterwards, and left him in charge of a fat old woman who had just come, bringing with her in a little bundle a small prayer book and a large nightcap. Putting the later on her head and the former on the table, the old woman, after telling Oliver that she had come to sit up with him, drew a chair close to the fire and went off into a series of short naps checkered at frequent intervals with sundry tumblings forward and divers moans and chokings these however had no worse effect than causing her to rub her nose very hard and then fall asleep again and thus the night crept slowly on Oliver lay awake for some time, counting us little circles of light which a reflection of the rush light shade threw upon the ceiling, or tracing with his languid eyes the intricate pattern of the paper on the wall. The darkness and the deep stillness of the room were very solemn, as they brought into the boy's mind the thought that death had been hovering there for many days and nights, and might yet fill it with the gloom and dread of his awful presence. He turned his head upon the pillow and fervently prayed to heaven. Gradually he fell into that deep, tranquil sleep which ease from recent suffering alone imparts, that calm and peaceful rest which is its pain awake from. Who, if this were death, would be roused again to all the struggles and turmoils of life, to all its cares for the present, its anxieties for the future, more than all its weary recollections of the past? It had been a right day for hours when Oliver opened his eyes. He felt cheerful and happy. The crisis of the disease was safely past. He belonged to the world again. In three days' time he was able to sit in an easy chair, well propped up with pillows, and, and as he was still too weak to walk, Mrs. Bedwin had him carried downstairs into the little housekeeper's room, which belonged to her. Having him sit, 
here by the fireside the good old lady sat herself down too and being in a state of considerable delight at seeing him so much better forthwith began to cry most violently never mind me my dear said the old lady i'm only having ready below good cry there it's all over and i'm quite comfortable you're very very kind to me pam said none of her well never you mind that my dear said the old lady that's got nothing to do with your broth and it's full time you had it for the doctor says mr brownlow may come in to see you in the, this morning we must get up our best looks because the better we look the more he'll be pleased and with this the old lady applied herself to warming up in a little saucepan a basin full of broth strong enough oliver thought to furnish an ample dinner when reduced to the regulation strength for five hundred and fifty paupers the lowest computation are you fond of pictures dear inquired the old lady seeing that oliver fixed his eyes most intently on a portrait which hung against the wall just opposite his chair i don't quite know ma'am said oliver without taking his eyes from the canvas i've seen so few i hardly know what a beautiful mild-faced that lady's is ah said the old lady painters always make ladies out prettier than they are or they wouldn't give any custom child the man that invented the machine for taking likenesses might have known they would never succeed it's a deal too honest a deal <laughs> the old lady laughing very hard here at her own acuteness is is that a likeness ma'am said oliver yes said the old lady looking up a moment from the broth that's a portrait whose ma'am asked oliver well really my dear i don't know answered the old lady in a good human manner it's not a likeness of anybody that you or i know i expect it seems to strike your fancy dear it is so pretty replied oliver why sure you're not afraid of it said the old lady observing in great surprise the look of awe with which the child regarded the painting oh no no returned oliver quickly but the eyes look so sorrowful and while i sit they seem fixed on on me it makes my heart beat and an oliver in a low voice as if it was alive and wanted to speak to me but couldn't god save us exclaimed the old lady starting don't talk that way child you're weak and nervous after your illness let me wheel your chair around to the other side and then you won't see it there said the old lady suiting action to the word you don't see it now with at all events oliver did see it in his mind's eye as distinctly as if he had not altered his position but he thought it better not to worry the kind old lady and so he smiled gently when she looked at him and mrs bedwing satisfied that he felt more comfortable salted and broke bits of toasted bread into the broth with all the bustle befitting so solemn a preparation oliver got through it with extraordinary expedition he had scarcely finished the last spoonful when there came a soft rap at the door come in said the old lady and in walked mr brownlow now the old gentleman came in as brisk as need be but he had no sooner raised his spectacles on his forehead and thrust his hands behind the skirts of his dressing-gown to take a good long look at oliver that his countenance underwent a very great variation of odd contortions 
one of her looked very worn and shadowy from sickness and made an ineffectual attempt to stand up out of respect to his benefactor which terminated in his sinking back into the chair again and the fact is if the truth must be told that mr brownlow's heart being large enough for any six ordinary old gentlemen of humane disposition forced a supply of tears into his eyes by some hydraulic process which were not sufficiently philosophical to be in a condition to explain poor boy poor boy said mr brownlow clearing his throat i'm rather hoarse this morning miss bedwin i'm afraid i have caught cold i hope not sir said mrs bedwin everything you had that has been well aired sir i don't know miss bedwin i don't know said mr brownlow i rather think i had a damp napkin at dinner-time yesterday but never mind that how do you feel my dear very happy sir replied oliver and very grateful indeed sir for your goodness to me good-bye said mr brownlow stalking have you given him any nourishment bedwin any slops eh you just had a basin full of beautiful strong broth sir replied mrs bedwin drawing herself up slightly and laying strong emphasis on the last word to intimate that between slops and broth will all compounded there existed no affinity or connection whatsoever oh said mr brownlow with a shy shudder a couple of glasses of pulled wine would have done him a good more good wouldn't there tom white eh my name is oliver sir replied the little invalid with a look of great astonishment oliver said mr brownlow oliver what oliver white eh no sir a twist oliver twist queer name said the old gentleman what made you tell the magistrate your name was white i never told him so sir returned oliver in amazement it sounded so like a falsehood that the old gentleman looked somewhat sternly in oliver's face it was impossible to doubt him there was truth in every one of its thin and sharp lineaments some mistake said mr brownlow but although his motive for looking steadily at oliver no longer existed the old idea of the resemblance between his features and some familiar face came upon him so strongly that he could not withdraw his gaze i hope you're not angry miss sir said oliver raising his eyes beseechingly no no by the ocean why what's this bedwin look look there as he spoke he pointed hastily at the picture over oliver's head and then to the boy's face there was its living copy the eyes the head the mouth every feature was the same the expression was for the instant so precisely alike that the minutest lines seemed copied with startling accuracy oliver knew not the cause of his sudden exclamation not being strong enough to bear the start it gave him he fainted away a witness on his part which affords a narrative opportunity of relieving the reader from suspense in behalf of the two young pupils of the merry old gentleman of recording 
that when the Dodger and his accomplished friend, Master Bates, joined in the hue and cry, which was raised at Oliver's heels, in consequence of their executing an illegal conveyance of Mr. Brownlow's personal property, as has already been described, they were actuated by a very laudable and becoming regard for themselves, and forasmuch as the freedom of the subject and the liberty of the individual are among the first and proudest boasts for true-hearted Englishmen. So I need hardly beg the reader to observe that this action should tend to exalt them in the opinion of all public and patriotic men. In almost as great a degree as this strong proof of their anxiety for their own preservation and safety goes to corroborate and confirm the little code of laws which certain profound and sound judging philosophers have laid down as the main springs of all nature's deeds and actions. A said philosophers very wisely reducing the good lady's proceedings to matters of maxim and theory and by a very neat and pretty compliment to her exalted wisdom and understanding putting entirely out of sight any considerations of heart or generous impulse and feeling for these are matters totally beneath a female who is acknowledged an universal admission to be far above the numerous little foibles and weaknesses of her sex if i wanted any further proof of the strictly philosophical nature of the conduct of these young gentlemen in the very delicate predicament i should at once find it in the fact also recorded in the foregoing part of this narrative of their quitting the pursuit when the general attention was fixed upon oliver in making immediately for their home by the shortest possible cut and i do not mean to assert that it is usually the practice for renowned and learned sages to shorten the road to any great conclusion of course instead being rather to lengthen the distance by various circumlocutions and discursive staggerings like unto those in which the drunken men under the pressure of a too mighty flow of ideas are prone to indulge still i do mean to say and do say distinctly that it is the invariable practice of many mighty philosophers in carrying out their theories to evince great wisdom and foresight in providing against every possible contingency which can be supposed at all likely to affect themselves thus to do a great right you may do a little wrong and you may take any means which the end to be attained will justify the amount of the right or the amount of the wrong or indeed this distinction between the two being left entirely to the philosopher concerned to be settled and determined by his clear comprehensive and impartial view of his own particular case it was not until the two boys had scoured with great rapidity through a most intricate maze of narrow streets and courts that they ventured to halt beneath a low and dark archway having remained silent here just long enough to recover breath speak mr bates uttered an exclamation of amusement and delight and bursting into an uncontrollable fit of laughter flung himself upon the doorstep and rolled thereafter in transport of mirth <laughs> what's the matter inquired the dodger <laughs> old charlie bates oh your noise remonstrated the dodger looking coolly around you want me grab stupid i can't help it lied charlie i can't help it to see him spitting away at our pace and cut round corners and not getting up again the post and starting on again as if he were me to hide as well as them and me with a wipe in my pocket singeing out out of him oh my eye 
The vivid imagination of Master Bates presented the scene before him in two strong colours. As he arrived at this apostrophe, he again rolled upon the doorstep and laughed louder than before. What Fagin say? inquired the dodger, taking advantage of the next interval of breathlessness on the part of his friend to propound the question. What? replied Charlie Bates. Ah, uh, what? said the dodger. What, what shall we say? inquired Charlie, stopping rather suddenly in his merriment, for the dodger's manner was impressive. What should he say? Mr. Dawkins whistled for a few minutes, then, taking off his hat, scratched his head, and nodded thrice. What do you mean? said Charlie. Two rouleau, gammon and spinach, the froggy wooden, and I cook lorum, said the dodger, with a slight sneer on his intellectual countenance. This was explanatory, but not satisfactory. After Bates felt it so, and it said again, What do you mean? And Dodger made no reply, but putting his hat on again, and gathering the skirts of his long-tailed coat under his arm, thrust his tongue into his cheek, slapped the bridge of his nose some half a dozen times in a familiar but expressive manner, and turning on his heels, slunk down the court. The masturbates followed with a thoughtful countenance. The noise of footsteps on the creaking stairs, a few minutes after the occurrence of this uh, conversation, roused the merry old gentleman as he sat over the fire with a salve low and a small loaf in his hand, a pocket-knife in his right, and a pewter port on the trivet. There was a rascally smile on his white face as he turned round, and looking sharply out from under his thick red eyebrows, bent his ear toward the door and listened. Why, how's this? muttered the Jew, changing countenance. Where's the third? They can have got into trouble. Hark! The footsteps approached nearer. They reached the landing. The door was slowly opened, and the Dodger and Charlie Bates entered, closing it behind them. End of chapter 12 of Oliver Twist